Welcome to the Welfare Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Chelsea Luger. This is episode 14. This is part one of a two episode series that we are doing that is an update on the pandemic in Indian country. We'd like to note that these episodes have been generously funded by the National Geographic Society Emergency Fund for Journalists, who have provided grants for journalists reporting on the coronavirus, specifically in underrepresented communities. So thanks to the National Geographic Society for that. In this episode, we're going to focus on the public health perspective. And in the next episode, we're going to be looking toward cultural and spiritual impacts of the pandemic in Indian country. In our house, we have definitely been talking about the coronavirus quite a bit once again. It has worked its way back to the forefront of conversation and has continued to impact our day-to-day lives as we know it has done in most homes around the country. To be perfectly honest, for a while, we had been easing up on things like social distancing. We had been going out and about a little bit more. We took a few trips to restaurants and the mall. And generally, it did start to feel quite a bit safer around Arizona. Numbers were dropping significantly, and a lot of people around were just easing up. But... Now we are definitely back to a state of vigilance as we have observed numbers continuing to rise all across the nation. And we definitely feel like it is our responsibility, not just for our own family's safety, but for that of everyone around us to once again be more serious about social distancing and taking all of the proper precautions to prevent the spread of this virus. The second wave of the pandemic has definitely hit once again with numbers on the rise all over the nation. And one of the things that I've been doing daily is staying in communication with my family in North Dakota, where I'm from. The news today says that in North Dakota, the world's highest COVID-19 mortality rate is now taking place at 18.2 deaths per 1 million people. And nearby South Dakota has the third highest global mortality rate of COVID deaths right now with 17.4 deaths per million. So these are states with very small populations that had relatively low coronavirus numbers early on in the pandemic, but have just seen numbers skyrocketing in recent months. I think it has something to do with schools being open and workplaces being open. And um, being that the virus did not hit those areas particularly hard at first, I think that a lot of people viewed social distancing as unnecessary. And uh, fortunately, the governor has finally issued a mandate as of this week for mask wearing in public places But those kind of things were not in place for quite a while in that part of the country. So it just goes to show that this pandemic isn't over and it is coming back to certain places that had experienced a strong first wave and it's arriving for the first time in certain places that didn't experience an initial wave at all. So this is particularly scary. And, you know, just yesterday I heard One of my aunts came down with the virus. Um, So she's 
the second of my aunties actually that has got it so far. Thosh has had several family members here in Arizona that have had the virus. Um, I have a cousin who is in physical therapy school and at this point she knows dozens of people who have had it and that's at the University of North Dakota. I have a sister who's a kindergarten teacher and she has had at least one student come down with the virus and it just goes on and on. It's crazy how it continues to impact people who we know very close. We have uh, loved ones in our family circle who have gotten very sick or even died from the virus. And so I think from our perspective, you know, as wellness leaders, by no means do we claim to be public health professionals, but we do feel that it is our responsibility to advise being vigilant about this, about this virus and don't lose sight of our responsibility to protect our elders and to protect our vulnerable populations and our, and anybody else who has pre-existing conditions that might make them more susceptible to getting sick or dying from this because it is definitely uh, sweeping Indian country just as much as it is sweeping the rest of the nation. We heard some tragic news a few months ago in October. A 17-year-old girl named Elvia Ramirez, who was living on the three-affiliated reservation in North Dakota, but who also has roots in Salt River, where Thosh is from, which is our home community in Arizona. She became the youngest person in the state of North Dakota to die from the virus. And so we send our condolences to her family, and we have continued to keep her in our prayers ever since hearing about the news of her passing. Hearing all of these stories feels particularly scary as I'm in the ninth month of my pregnancy. We have our second baby on the way, which we are so excited about. But of course, it has been really interesting to see how the virus has impacted our prenatal care, our birthing plan, and um, how we have been managing care for our two-year-old daughter at home. Research has shown now that pregnant women are at increased risk of severe coronavirus symptoms as compared to non-pregnant women, meaning potentially if I were to get the virus, I could get really sick from it. And of course, if our children were to get the virus, we still don't know what the long-term impacts of that could be on their respiratory health or other aspects of their health. And so, um, so these are the kind of things that we're really thinking about. Again, it's safe to say that COVID is impacting Indian country at high and significant rates. And as tribal nations, as tribal governments, we need to remain vigilant and, um, and lead the way in doing so, particularly as other governments are responding to the virus in such drastically different ways. We we have all seen how President Trump has responded on the federal level. He has been notably flippant in his response to the virus, even after contracting it himself and hearing daily reports of thousands and thousands of American citizens dying. He has continued to double down on his perspective that concerns are overblown, which is mind-blowing, really. And on the other hand, 
President-elect Joe Biden has announced his intentions of rolling out a federal pandemic response immediately after taking office in January. So we do look forward to seeing what that response entails and whether there will be a cohesive set of federal regulations that are designed to keep the country safe. It will be very interesting to see um, what that plan is and how different states and different tribal nations decide to implement that in their um, constituencies. Some states around the nation are, again, taking coronavirus response very seriously. And notably, many of these states that are experiencing widespread second waves or new waves of the virus do have large Native American populations. We talked already about North and South Dakota, but also the governors of Oregon, Washington, and New Mexico in recent days have issued lockdown orders. And I believe California is considering doing the same. So there are, again, uh, thousands and thousands of uh, indigenous people in all of those states who are impacted by their policies. And so for those of you out there who are living in those areas where second waves are uh, sweeping across your states, uh, we encourage you to remain vigilant and we thank you for doing so in order to protect one another. So let's talk about the vaccine Two pharmaceutical companies in recent days have announced that they have developed coronavirus vaccines that have proven to be 90% effective in their initial studies. Those companies are called Moderna and Pfizer. Some of the talk that we have seen about the vaccine on our social media feeds in recent months has been one of skepticism. A lot of Native people don't want to be viewed or used as guinea pigs for these vaccine trials or for the initial rollouts of these. And there has definitely been talk online about um, just a lot of different people who are who are really viewing this um, with skepticism. And we know that, of course, the anti-vaxxer group and population tends to have a really loud voice in a lot of circles. And we would just like to note that, again, as wellness advocates, we're not public health professionals, we're not doctors, but we're concerned parents. We are um, concerned with the health and wellness of our communities. And we really do think that it's important to bring all perspectives of this conversation to the table and to note that there really is a radicalized anti-vaxxer voice out there that should also be viewed with skepticism. And so we need to be critical thinkers when it comes to our health and when it comes to public health. And what I've learned in the research that we've done recently is that If anything, as Indian country, we should be concerned about being excluded from the vaccine conversation. Our communities have been impacted by this virus at significant rates, and we deserve to have access to this vaccine, and we deserve to have good information about this vaccine, just as any other population would have access to. 
So again, I encourage everybody to really approach this conversation and to learn everything you can about the safety and efficacy of this and from there to make the best decision for you and your family. But of course, we didn't rely on our own instincts or our own research um, to talk about a topic as serious as this. We reached out to the Center for American Indian Health at Johns Hopkins University because they have a team of experts there who have been handling the pandemic response in Indian country for months now and who have been boots on the ground working on coronavirus response in Indian country. And we wanted to know, will Indian country have access to this vaccine? Has Indian country played a role in vaccine development thus far? Will the vaccine work in our populations? And how skeptical should we be of this? Fortunately, we did get some answers. The following interview is with Deanna Vigil, who is a research program coordinator for the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. She has been working in the area of vaccine trials and pandemic response in several Southwestern Native nations, including the Navajo Nation and the White Mountain Apache Tribe. And she was able to answer some of our questions. Dee is concerned with what she calls indigenous bioethics, which is making sure that research and clinical trials are conducted ethically in Native communities. Please keep in mind that this interview took place in October. So much of what she says remains absolutely relevant, which is why we're publishing it now. And when we did reach out to her for an update the other day, she just said to make sure to announce the Pfizer and Moderna updates and to continue to follow the news in that sense. Welcome to the Welfare Culture Podcast. We're so excited to speak to you today. And we're wondering if you could just please introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us um, who you are, where you're from, what you do, and um, what type of work you've been doing to respond to the pandemic. Sure, thank you. Um, good afternoon. Uh, I just, that's Tewa. That's the language that my tribe speaks. Um, so I just said, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Diana and I'm from Namba Pueblo, New Mexico. I am a research program coordinator at the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health, um, located here in our Chinle site. And so I moved here February 17th of this year and, uh, not even a month later, the Navajo Nation declared a public health state of emergency. And so at that time, I was sent home. Uh, almost all of our staff was sent home who didn't uh, have to be at work to complete work. And maybe a week after that, our center really pivoted and everyone started working on pandemic response. But in the beginning, I started helping our my colleagues put together boxes. Uh, we called them wellness boxes. And um, we had food and sometimes they had water, um, cleaning supplies, some hygiene products that had been donated to us, um, things like that. Some we purchased with donated funds. Um, but people really were super giving um, at the time and stepped up to try to 
you know, give people the resources that they need at the time and, and still need. And so that's how it started out. And we would go deliver these boxes to homes that either were vulnerable or had been affected by COVID-19. And then the, uh, I was sort of shifted to, um, our expanded testing, contact tracing and supported quarantine and isolation team. And that team worked on increasing testing um, throughout Navajo Nation, White Mountain Apache tribes. And then we also, um, when you have expanded testing, you're likely um, you're going to need more resources for the people who are testing positive. And so we needed to also extend um, our contact tracing teams and also our community connectors, which are the people who put the boxes together and get the goods out to the community. So we worked on that and and a little bit of that involved uh, testing strategy across um, both tribes. And then currently uh, my work focuses on COVID-19 vaccine trials um, and communications around the vaccine trials and vaccines in in general um, to try to help people understand what they are, what they mean, uh, why it's important for uh, natives to be included in them and those numbers and um, hopefully make people feel more comfortable about getting a vaccine once licensed to help uh, stop the spread of COVID-19. So the center had a existing relationship with both the Navajo Nation and the White Mountain Apache tribe. And then it also just so happened that both of those nations were pretty significantly impacted by, by COVID. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, we have a really long-standing relationship with both both tribes, extending over uh, or maybe close to forty-year um, relationship. It started quite a while ago, and um, it actually started with our infectious disease prevention programs. Um, with at the time, there was a lot of um, babies dying from uh, dehydration from um, for various reasons. And so the both um, tribes helped to bring to, you know, market what is called Pedialyte. Um, and so that's sort of how it started. And then we've just maintained that relationship throughout the years and have worked on different vaccines as well. Um, and then introduced our behavioral health programs, which focus on teen, preg- um, teen pregnancy prevention programs, as well as um, other family-based curriculum. So it is interesting that there was some infrastructure in place there for Johns Hopkins to be able to jump right in and start working on a fast track COVID response. If you could just give a brief update on your perspective of the current state of COVID in Indian country and um, maybe any um, anecdotes or points of data that you think are important for people to know right now. I'd say that Native country is uh, in a much better place now than it was three or four months ago. Um, Overall, I'd say tribes did a really good job at responding quickly and efficiently into the pandemic, um, as well as, you know, other Native organizations, urban Indian healthcare um, or health centers and you know, basically anyone who uh, has a stake in this. And so um, people really at the beginning didn't know 
what this was, how to, you know, respond to it. How do we identify and isolate cases? How do we provide people the resources that they need to quarantine and isolate um, efficiently? What kind of regulations do we have to put in place? How do we really keep our people safe? And so I think, you know, it's been, we're in the sixth month now, maybe. And uh, that has given people a lot of time to form effective um, systems. And many tribes have the CARES Act money now. And so um, I think that that really puts us in a position to handle the current caseload, uh, as well as if cases were to, you know, increase or spike, like we're seeing in some, in some areas. And so we're, we're definitely in a much better place, but, you know, it's still not over yet. Um, the Navajo Nation, you know, was regularly in the media for having the highest COVID-19 cases per capita. Um, and then just last month, and they announced their first day with no new COVID cases since the pandemic started. So um, that's really exciting and reassuring, and um, it gives me hope, but I, at the same time, you know, don't want people to uh, sort of get too comfortable and feel like, you know, they need to loosen up on mask wearing or hand washing or uh, social distancing and, you know, disinfecting frequently, those types of things. Yeah, we definitely still need to practice those um, to keep each other safe. So specifically in the areas where you're working, the Navajo Nation and White Mountain Apache tribe, are people going back to work, back to school, back to daycare? And is that something that you think, if so, is that going well or is that a little bit dangerous or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Part of our response has been uh, data management. And so we've been working really closely with the Navajo Epicenter um, to help collect the data, um, figure out what kind of what's called testing metrics or things that we want to collect on to help inform public policy um, like reopenings or weekend lockdowns, go- going back to work, stuff like that. They want to they want people to return back to work and people want to return back to work, especially for um, more essential services. Places of work are having to come up with plans um, like how do we keep our people safe here? How do we maintain social distance? How do we improve our ventilation systems? Um, Do we have staggered work schedules? Do we require testing every time, you know, somebody comes back from vacation or say, since everyone was sent home, do we test them once they come back? And then do we do regular testing after that to make sure people are safe? And so um, those are a lot of questions that people are asking and, and looking for the resources for to to structure their places of work um, in a safe way. People are wanting to reopen things, but they're trying to do so safely and trying to take all precautions possible to do that while still, you know, requiring mask wearing, disinfecting frequently, um, requiring hand washing, things like that. If you could just share with us a little bit more about your um, background and how you became a part of the vaccine efforts and um, like what is the current state of your information gathering process regarding anything to do with the vaccine in Indian country? 
Yeah. So the center, um, as I mentioned before, we've been working uh, with vaccines um, on Navajo Nation and White Mountain Apache tribes for many years. And so at um, we were also working really closely with the unified um, command, a unified I think they're called the Unified Command Group of the Navajo Nation, who is the group in charge of working on the, they're basically the incident command response team for the entire nation. And so we were working really closely with them on many different things um, in terms of the response. And so part of the things that that group is trying to do is um, prevent COVID-19 by encouraging mask wearing, hand washing, all of those things that um, I've mentioned and we hear all the time. But one of those ways is also vaccines. Um, when vaccines started to become more available and they were going into phase one, two um, trials, the Navajo Nation knew that uh, Johns Hopkins had experience with vaccines um, and that we have the resources to be able to bring that trial here um, as we have with others in the past. And so a uh, sort of COVID vaccine advisory group was formed here. And um, we talked through various um, vaccines that are available and tried to choose the best ones, the ones that might be licensed um, the soonest or that have a better chance of being licensed um, and, and making sure that we, that um, Navajo Nation citizens are a part of that uh, just to make sure that it works here in the community because there have been instances in the past where a vaccine works in, in other places um, like Germany or something like that, um, but they just were not as effective here. And so it's really important to understand um, and test vaccines that are important here or that will work here. Um, so that's how the center got involved. And then I got roped into all of this um, from the the testing team. Also, I have a background um, in molecular biology. And so I, I've had some done some work with vaccines um, previously. And and I also have a strong research background in um, indigenous research ethics um, when it comes to clinical trials and things like that. And so then I sort of uh, started getting looped in more just to make sure that um, you know, things are ethical and that we're providing information to the community and that we're being really transparent with what's going on. And, and then, so that was for the vaccine trials, but then now for now that we're moving towards a licensed vaccine, um, it's now about making sure that people have all the information that they need to make an informed decision about being vaccinated. And so it's been really quite the ride um, with these with these trials. There's a lot of misinformation uh, out there and and truthfully, not a lot of access um, to information that is you know easy to digest and that is relevant or that would even make sense to most people. The vast majority of dialogue and conversation that we've seen on social media has been of skepticism from Indian country toward the vaccine. Um, I'm from North Dakota, and I remember a few months ago waking up and seeing all over social media people saying, you know, they're using us as guinea pigs. The government wants to test this on our children, on our reservations. They don't know if it's safe. Can you help us explain why this 
level of skepticism might exist? And also, why should we be viewing this clinical trial with more trust? For sure, that skepticism and mistrust comes from you know, a history of atrocities um, towards natives from researchers and the U.S. federal government. It's really healthy for people to approach these things with these types of issues with skepticism um, and ask, you know, a lot of questions and keep asking those questions until they get the answers that, that they're satisfied with, because um, there are instances where we are exploited and we are taken advantage of and we are used as test subjects. Um, I don't think that's the case now. Um, and I think what makes this trial different is that there's a, a way to regulate clinical research and the body that regulates that, um, at least on the Navajo Nation, is the Navajo Nation Human Research Review Board. And so they are really um, the people who give the final approval on clinical trials here for example, and I'll just speak about Navajo Nation because that's where I have most experience with and what I what I know. They have a really good um, like vetting process, I guess, to make sure that um, all of the research being conducted is ethical, that we follow all of their their guidelines that, that they've set to protect their people. And they also have an extensive like community um, support or input process prior to even. So you have to get a lot of approvals from community groups um, before even submitting an application to their group. And so at the time, though, um, and which is where a lot of uh, this is coming from, at least here, is that the people. So the meetings that we would usually go to for community input and support weren't happening. And so we just sought advice from the Navajo Nation Human Research Review Board on what should we do, because we um, we need to have these trials here and there's a short window to enroll. Um, and so how do we best do that? And so we followed all of their guidelines and then now are going back to um, different those different meetings and presenting on the study and getting their support now um, and hopefully providing them with the information that they need to make um, informed decisions about this. So uh, I think one thing to note is that children are not... Um, eligible for these studies. And there's a, you know, a really intense, um, I guess it's not as intense. I don't want to scare people, but we really take informed consent seriously. And so if people don't understand the research um, process or what the study is looking for, what um, they're being asked to do and what's being tested, uh, then they're not eligible for the study. And Another uh, thing that I hear a lot is um, compensation for uh, enrolling in these trials um, in communities or in places that um, have really low socioeconomic status and and how that can be seen as sort of coercive. And so we do um, there is a. compensation involved in this, but it's not anything that has been deemed by um, review boards as coercive because it's such a little amount of money. Um, and then and it's only paying people for, you know, their time, 
gas money to get here, things like that. Um, they go through blood draws, um, not testing anything genetically, but just testing for antibodies to see if the vaccine is actually working. Uh, and so that's a two-year period. The study is a two-year period and they're asking people to keep electronic diaries. And so that's a lot of work and a lot to ask from someone. Um, and so this compensation is just compensating people for their time and inconvenience and, and not necessarily just to participate. So just to be clear, the Navajo Nation and from what you understand, other tribes are also themselves internally requesting to be a part of these clinical trials and and studies of the COVID vaccine. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. What is the benefit to the Navajo Nation and potentially other tribes who are asking to participate? What is the benefit to being a part of the clinical trial process? Everyone who enrolls in the trial has a 50-50 chance of getting actual vaccine or a placebo. Um, And so... So say 200 or so people enroll here, 100 of them get the vaccine and say the vaccine is actually actually works um, and it it does mount an efficient immune response to help protect people from COVID-19. Then that's already, you know, 100 people in the community who are now vaccinated. And so that is one benefit. And the other benefit is uh, is something that we call uh, like equity in clinical research, which is that um, in Native communities have been some of the hardest hit by COVID-19 um, and are the least represented in clinical trials, if they're even represented at all, um, at least in the case of this vaccine trial and others. And so it, it just only makes sense to to bring those communities into vaccine studies to make sure that they work here. And so that's another benefit is making sure that the vaccine that's being tested that will potentially be licensed and distributed actually works um, in your community. So it's kind of like what you mentioned before is that sometimes vaccines don't work on certain ethnic populations or certain segments of the population, and sometimes they work in others for myriad reasons. And so this is just to make sure that they're actually working in native communities. Yeah. And in the population that's, um, you know, enrolled in, in the study. And so what, like, I think it has more to do with, um, maybe less to do with, um, like ethnic, um, background in terms of like genetics, I'd say, but more to do with region, um, and things like that. And so the instance I brought up earlier was that a vaccine worked against, you know, certain types of a bacterial infection in, um, in Germany, but but here in the Southwest, there was a different type that of the bacteria that was infecting most of the people. So that vaccine was not effective um, over here, and so that's that's just a, an example of why um, it's important to to test vaccines where you are. So right now, we wouldn't necessarily be able to draw the conclusion that this vaccine is indeed safe and effective for all of native country, but we can draw the conclusion that these clinical trials are beneficial. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we can definitely draw the conclusion that they're, they are beneficial. Um, and, and I think overall they will be safe for everyone. Um, and so, so the safety part of it, uh, is really something that 
wouldn't change much, um, depending on who you are, where you live. Um, however, the effectiveness of it, um, might be different. And so, uh, I think I would still encourage people, um, to get a COVID-19 vaccine after it's licensed, uh, even if they're unsure if it will be, you know, super effective on them, there's still a good chance. So I think it's a chance worth taking. So right now, the federal government is pushing a vaccine rollout, and we want to know how will this impact Native country? I would hope mostly in a positive way. It would affect us in a really positive way. I can't uh, right now at the moment, and maybe I'm missing something, see any negative uh, ways that that we could be affected by that. I think it's really important to advocate and push for vaccines. Um, And I think it's also important to understand that, you know, the government um, or like political entities are separate from vaccine trials. And so the researchers who are working on these trials and the clinicians who are working on them and, and everybody assessing the safety data and making sure, you know, that they work and, and are safe for use um, are separate from that. And so as much as anyone wants to push a vaccine or um, advocate for it, there are separate entities on making sure that in doing so we're doing it the right way. Um, and so no, uh, phases are being skipped. No steps are being looked over. Um, people are really just, you know, putting all of their team's energy into making sure that we can have something, um, in a really timely manner. And hopefully his, pushing of this can lead to more funding, um, for, for people to be able to create the vaccine, um, pass through these trials and also, you know, mass produce them for distribution. Um, and I'm hoping that natives are not left out of that distribution process. I think, um, national Indian health board has been really good at staying on top of that and working with tribes and, um, Indian health service, health services to make sure that we're not left out and that we have all the resources we need to efficiently distribute a vaccine once available. A common concern amongst people are the ingredients in vaccines. Are they safe and can they have adverse effects? So in the early, we'll call it the early days of vaccine production, um, there were things that people were using that may have been less safe for the body. And and then that people later, um, we ended up finding out, you know, that they cause a lot of harm. But we've had many, many years to uh, sort of work on this recipe, I'll call it a vaccine recipe. Um, And so... Now, I think that shouldn't be as much of a worry. Um, there's, there's vaccines are heavily regulated and, uh, you know, tested for safety. And so one of the concerns I hear with the COVID-19 vaccine is that, you know, we haven't been testing safety long enough to know if, if there will be any long-term effects. Um, but like I said, there's, there's like, say, a standard vaccine recipe that people have been working on for so long that the chances of having any long-term negative effects of a vaccine are so low. Um, They can happen, 
I think there's always that chance. Um, but, but the chance of it happening is so low that it's really unlikely to happen at all. I've heard about studies that link autism with vaccines, but I've also heard those sources say since then that those studies have been retracted for lack of robust evidence. What are your thoughts on this and the ethics of vaccinations? Yeah, I, I'm less familiar uh, with how those processes happen. Um, but I do know that people work really hard and this is their full-time career is to develop vaccines or, um, and, and test their, you know, efficacy and safety. And so I think that, um, that, that also though, doesn't take away the fact that people still believe that, you know, even though that study was retracted, people still um, believe that link and they will use that to, um, you know, protest vaccines. And that's one of the reasons why we're really trying to get ahead of, or at least stay on top of, um, you know, properly informing people because the, the misinformation that spreads um, can sometimes cause, it spreads really fast and as, as we know, and it can cause uh, much more harm to people um, than, than may be anticipated. And so I think that it's really important to, to understand that the people who are creating these vaccines, it is not in their best interest to create something that could cause harm. Um, that's, you know, their livelihood and, and they care about this stuff and they know this stuff really well. And so um, it is in their best interest to make it as safe as possible. And I think the people who are advocating for it um, are, you know, people who are from our community and who are, who serve in leadership roles. Um, and, and it's also not in their best interest to, to hurt anyone. And so I think that, um, you know, we can safely bet that we're going to be okay. Some parents are choosing not to vaccinate their children based on herd immunity since the children they're going to school with are getting vaccinated. But my question is, if a high number of people are choosing to do this, just how effective will herd immunity be? Thank you for bringing that up. Um, that's one thing that uh, people think really, um, let me not overgeneralize in that way, but a lot of people uh, think very individualistically and they feel like, like you just mentioned, um, it, well, I don't need to get vaccinated. My kids don't need to get vaccinated because everyone else is vaccinated. So it will protect them. Um, but like you said, if everyone is has that same view or that same mentality, uh, then it ends up being that no one is vaccinated and then there's no herd immunity. And then everyone is susceptible to, you know, like you mentioned, old world diseases or, or diseases that have been eradicated, um, due to vaccines or largely due to vaccines. And so with the COVID-19, um, vaccine would function in the same way. You know, if enough, maybe we can't vaccinate everyone, but if enough people get vaccinated, then that might be enough to protect those who either can't get vaccinated or who even after vaccination remain um, very vulnerable to the disease. So the final clarification that I just really want to drive home is that the health of Indian country is more at risk by being excluded from the clinical trial and from the vaccine process than we are from being skeptical of the vaccine, correct? 
That is correct. Yeah. Thank you for really clarifying that. It is in all of our best interest to um, get vaccinated and to support trials when done right. There are two other tribes and um, their names are escaping me right now uh, who are participating in vaccine in phase three um, clinical vaccine trials. And so Navajo Nation isn't the only one, um, but it is the only one that I, again, because of I work here and also social media, I'm in the Southwest. Um, the one that I hear the most about and the most criticisms about. Um, but I think that all this information can be applicable to you know all of Indian country I think um to all indigenous people it's really relevant and so uh and and a lot of this information can safely be shared and I just want to also make it clear you know that I don't speak on behalf of Navajo Nation uh or White Mountain Apache tribes this has just been my experience and all of the information that I shared is publicly available information We thank Deanna and we thank the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health for helping us navigate and answer some of these questions. And we hope that you all are able to learn as much as we did from this conversation.